Amen. Will you please make your way in your Bibles with me this morning once again to the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, where we will be looking together at verses 16, 17, and 18. Matthew chapter 6, 16 through 18. You can find that passage on page 950 in your Pew Bibles. You may remember that back several weeks ago at the very beginning of this sixth chapter here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, that I pointed out to you that there are really three main subheadings here, or three primary illustrations, if you will, given to us by Jesus for our consideration in this chapter as we look at the way in which we, as the particular people of God, are to conduct ourselves in our acts of personal righteousness, our acts of personal piety before Almighty God. You will remember that we talked about the way in which we are to do our almsgiving or our acts of righteousness. We now, for the last few weeks, have been talking about the way in which we are to approach that Blessed communion that the true child of God has with his or her father in heaven. Of course, through which we call prayer. The great overarching principle in both was that we were, first and foremost, to do everything that we do, quorum Deo, or as before the face of God. We are to live our lives... Unto God. We are not to be carried away by the constant nagging desire of our sinful flesh to have the praises of men, which, when we get them, Jesus tells us very directly here that those praises are, in fact, our reward. The praise of men is certainly attainable for any of us. All we really need to do is convince those around us that we are much, much more holy than we actually are. We all know to one degree or another that that goal is certainly not at all unattainable, is it? And I have no doubt that we all understand this and that we are all, in fact, dealing with it to one degree or another, even now in our lives. Our flesh loves to move us towards other people's approval and away from ever realizing, ever becoming fully aware of the continual gaze of our magnificent Creator upon us. And so now, having looked rather intently at prayer, which is the actual heart of all three illustrations in this chapter, the very heart of our pilgrimage even as the people of God carrying the burden of our own sin through this troubled life, We need to look here at this third and final illustration so that we can one last time be reminded of that great principle of living as before the face of Almighty God in this life. Chapter 5 of Matthew, which again is the opening chapter of this Sermon on the Mount, talks to us about the Christian's attitude towards life, this life, with regards to his thought life, and to his consideration of the holy law of God. And now here in chapter 6, we have seen that we are now moving towards gaining 
the proper perspective on our conduct as the children of God living amid a fallen world. When we consider our conduct here in chapter 6, we should probably be hearing that continual refrain of Jesus Christ as we consider each of these three areas which are before us, which opened this chapter in verse 1 and then continues to show up in one form or another throughout the remainder of the chapter. You might remember what that is. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds, you do not do your righteousness, your piety before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Beloved, I want to tell you, we need to keep this constantly at the very front of our minds as we consider the three areas of Christian existence that Jesus expounds upon here for our consideration. And again, they are in order here, right? That which we do good to others, or simply put, our almsgiving. Then there is our personal, intimate communion with the Father, our prayer life. And third, we'll be looking at more closely this morning, is this question of our own personal discipline in our spiritual lives, considered here specifically in terms of fasting. So we have in our lives as the children of God our contacts with others. We have our contact with God. And this morning we're going to consider our contact with ourselves. Allow me to put it more clearly in the terms that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses in his commentary on this most wonderful sermon that's recorded for us here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He says this. We have here in Matthew 6 a threefold division of terms. What I do with others, what I do with God, and what I do with myself. This morning, it's my desire to bring into a sharper focus that third subject for our consideration regarding what it is that we are now to do with ourselves. So if you would, please follow along with me this morning as I read now from the Word of God, Matthew chapter 6. Again, I will pick up with verse 16 and read through 18. Hear now the Word of our Lord. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Moreover, When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. This is the word of our Lord, and may he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful for this time together. We're grateful that we can come together and we can sit under the preaching of your word. We pray, Father, that you would fill us all with your spirit as we consider these things. We pray that where there needs to be conviction, you would bring it. Where there needs to be praises given, that we would give it. Where there needs to be thanksgiving, that it would motivate the very way that we live. And Father, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, I think that it's important here at the outset of our discussion of something like spiritual discipline, or more specifically here in the text, something like fasting, that we need to make a few important preliminary remarks. Throughout the history of the people of God, there has always been this need for a variation of emphasis when teaching the truth of God's Word. We see it throughout the text of both the Old and the New Testaments. We see both the reoccurring stress upon the work of the priest, which centered more on the work side of the people of God, and and the work of the prophets, which focused more upon the aspect of faith being present among the people of God, depending on what was needed at the time. Though there are those who would present this fact as an apparent contradiction or as a disagreement within the scripture itself, we must see that they are really two aspects of the same truth and that they can only be properly understood when considered as being in complete harmony with one another. So there are no contradictions. Just two different aspects of the same overarching truth being emphasized depending upon the need. And of course we have the same thing going on perhaps even more clearly in the New Testament. We have spoken many times together of the Pharisees who were not simply trying to emphasize one aspect of the truth for the people of God, but were in fact making a false emphasis of a particular truth. And beloved, I trust that you have seen the difference between those two things, right? We we talk about them all the time. They were making an emphasis that was not there at all, and then moving the people towards a false understanding of what their lives were indeed to be, based entirely upon a false understanding of the truth itself. They were making a false emphasis, and so they stood in dire need of correction, which we have seen the Lord Jesus Christ give to them and to those who followed them so many times in Scripture, even here in the Sermon on the Mount. Allow me to try and clarify the correct way of understanding this differentiation of emphasis using yet another New Testament example. Consider for just a moment the difference between the emphasis in the writing of James on the one hand and the Apostle Paul on the other. We must not say, in seeing their differing emphasis, that these two men, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were at all in disagreement with one another, though many have dared to say as much. We must understand what was going we must understand what was going on to understand fully the harmony that actually existed between these two men. Each man being led by the Holy Spirit of God emphasized a different aspect of the same truth. James for example was writing to a people who were saying that as long as you just believed in Jesus all would be well. That you have no reason to consider anything else. In other words, just believe and then live your life knowing that your mental assent, that your verbal confession would be enough. Forget about being in any way 
wary of yourself and your flesh. Forget about wasting your time thinking about your sin and your behavior. Just believe and live, even if your life is a direct contradiction with your confession. Well, the only thing to say to such people is what? That faith without works is dead. Faith without works is not faith. Works are not the cause of faith, but they most certainly do when they are the fruit of faith manifest the glory of God. And then, of course, he had to bring about those people, he had to bring those people to the correct understanding of both faith and works and how true works always flow from true faith, right? We've talked about it before. They are the fruit of faith, the fruit of hearts that have been made grateful by the grace and power of God, opening our eyes to the wonderful glory of our salvation. However, if you are dealing with people who have wrongly made their faith to consist only in their particular works, or people who are constantly drawing the eyes of men to themselves and who stress all that they are doing, all that they are striving towards for God, then you must, like the Apostle Paul, emphasize the correct understanding of faith. You follow what I'm saying? You must show people that they are wrong to think that the Christian life is all about your earning the favor of Almighty God. You need to show them that they in and of themselves are not capable of anything like real righteousness in the holy law of God. You must show them that it's only Christ alone who kept that law perfectly, who stands therefore alone in being found righteous within the law. It was Jesus Christ that came and lived blameless in the eyes of the law, and it was Jesus Christ who died the perfect sacrifice in our place, taking upon himself the penalty that was due us. It's only faith in him alone, in his perfect work, his perfect righteousness being imputed to us, that can ever save sinful lawbreakers like you and me. Our works are the fruit of true faith and never, and I want you to hear me, beloved, never, ever the cause of it. The cause is nothing but the grace of God who gives us mercy, though we have earned wrath. And so you see the harmony here between these two men and their different emphasis of the exact same truth. Both are equally right. Both are emphasizing the truth to two different groups of people. Now, I say all of that only to serve as a kind of warning here to not lose sight of the harmony of the truth as we consider something like a spiritual discipline or fasting. Maybe even now you're thinking wrongly in one of two ways as I proceed to discuss something like fasting. You might be overly sensitive of anything ever being even remotely like a work, And wrongly, like the people who James spoke to, you're thinking, oh, please, Steve, Steve, do not proceed to tell us now that we need to fast. It is a work 
It has no place among people who properly understand and embrace the gospel. If you're thinking that, then I'm going to kindly ask you this morning to knock it off and listen to the word of God. Or maybe you're thinking, oh, finally, Steve, he's going to teach us how to fast. Finally, a work that we can do, something we can excel at. Well, again, if that is you, stop it and listen to the whole counsel of the word of God this morning because it is not my desire to do either one of those two things. The second of those two wrong ways of thinking is clear enough. I spend what I hope is a great deal of my time from this pulpit trying to show you the gospel in its glorious light and turn you away from vanity away from selfish pursuits towards trusting in Jesus Christ and his work, his righteousness by faith and faith alone, which really is entirely the gift of God. So please know that I am not here or ever trying to show you something that you can now do to earn the favor of God and thus earn your place in eternity with him. I have never taught that, and I hope by the grace of God that I never will. But it is equally wrong to have an absolute overreaction against something that is so prevalent within the canon of sacred scripture and to simply dismiss it as a vain work and never come to a correct understanding of whether or not it even has a place in the lives of Christians as the particular people of God. There is no contradiction in scripture I want to tell you, Scripture talks an awful lot about fasting. So rather than simply dismiss it, we had better find the harmony. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to tell you, I think this is so needed today in the evangelical church, which is so full of a shallow understanding of things like fasting, which are founded upon one of these two wrong-headed views about any work and its place in the Christian life. I'm not going to spend too much of our time this morning on the existence of fasting being positively mentioned in Scripture. I trust if you have spent any time at all in the Word of God, then you are certainly aware of its presence, not simply in the Old Testament, but throughout the New as well. I'm just going to mention a few of them. Under the law of Moses, the children of Israel were commanded by God to fast but once a year, and even then, it was as a nation. It was corporate. And during certain national emergencies then, the people were also told by their rulers that they would fast. Then we get into the New Testament and we see both right and wrong approaches to fasting. For instance, we learn that the Pharisees fasted twice a week. It was not commanded, but as was usually the case, they had made it a vital, very well-known part of their own religion. This is what we've seen them do continually. They went beyond the scriptures and in essence, as Steve said this morning in Sunday school, right? They majored in the minors. They forgot about the heart and they celebrated the letter, even the letter that they themselves had created. In the second chapter of Luke's gospel account, he describes the aged woman of God, Anna, 
as being a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God, how? With fastings and prayer night and day. In the early church, it was a practice that was going on regularly, not just annually as was the Jewish custom, but regularly when it was deemed necessary. You will read in Acts chapter 10 that Cornelius fasted. When describing the vision that he had just received, he said in verse 30, four days ago I was fasting until this hour and at about the ninth hour. I prayed in my house and behold a man stood before me in bright clothing. The apostles themselves in that same book, when considering what God would have them to do in a certain situation, You read in chapter 13, verse 3, that they, having fasted and prayed, laid hands on them and sent them away. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, describing the marriage responsibilities that husbands and wives have together, says that they have, I'm sorry, the marriage responsibilities that husbands and wives have together says that they should not deprive one another physically except when? With consent for a time that you may give yourself to what? Fasting and prayer. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 9 was asked why it was that he and his own disciples did not fast or that his disciples did not fast when the Pharisees and John's disciples fasted so often. You remember what Jesus said? Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days of the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Do you see it? Scripture is absolutely full of fasting. So, we must come to this important subject, asking what place it has in our lives as Christians. We cannot simply dismiss it as something that has no longer to be done after Jesus came and died for our sins because Jesus himself said that after he was taken away that his disciples would fast. There is, at the very least, very much implicit advocacy of fasting within the word of God. Which alone warrants our taking a closer look, right? So having a little bit of the scriptural history and examples of fasting, let us now look into it just a little bit further by asking some of those questions that naturally arise when we consider it. What exactly is fasting? What is the purpose of fasting? Time will not allow for us to go into an in-depth look at all the scriptural examples of fasting. I've given you just a few of them. I hope that you'll be challenged enough this morning to spend some time in your own private study of the Word of God, considering this practice itself more fully. But I think that when you do look closely at them, you will reach some of these conclusions. Fasting, in its most simple definition, is abstaining from physical nourishment, from the needs of the physical body, or from food for spiritual purposes. The biblical notion of fasting Fasting is that for spiritual purposes, men and women decide for a period of time to abstain from food, to suffer the flesh, 
in order to seek the face of God through prayer. It's something which is unusual or exceptional and should not be confused with simple, simple, ordinary discipline in this life. Moderation, taking care of our bodies, is certainly a biblical understanding of discipline and knowing that our bodies are the temple of the Lord. But that is not the same thing as fasting. Fasting is limited to abstinence from physical sustenance for the purpose of seeking the face of God on some particular matter. It involves discipline, but not merely for the sake of physical health and not simply for good stewardship, but for meditation and prayer and seeking the face of God in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Now, as we consider fasting even further, it's important to note that clearly here in the sermon before us, we learn that there is absolutely a wrong way and a right way to approach this whole idea of fasting. For example, fasting is not something we do as a part of a scheduled routine or program that we follow strictly as a part of our religion. So if I've made you nervous up to this this point, let me tell you that that's not what this is. We are not called in Scripture here to fast in any mere mechanical manner. If you say to yourself that you're now going to fast on this day of the week, on this day of the month as following a particular regimen of your religion, then you have missed the point of the special spiritual nature of fasting. It is not a law that we are to live under as if the act of doing it is the end and not the means to the end. You understand? We are not obligating God to move into action because we have done something for him when we fast. We saw the same principle ring true with prayer and our giving of alms. The motivation to do these things is not to be simply doing them just because. We are moved by the Spirit of God to do things because of what He has done for us, and He has never moved to do for us because of what we have done for Him. Beloved, do you believe that this morning? Anything that we do, simply for the sake of doing it, or as a matter of rule, or as a matter of schedule, is a violation of the clear teaching of Scripture in the spirit which lies behind it. Giving, praying, yes, fasting, are not in and of themselves ends. They are not the ends. They are means to the end. So we are not to fast simply for the sake of doing it. And we are not to fast because we think that by doing it, we're fulfilling our duty. We're fulfilling our obligation to God. And now he's obligated to us to act on our behalf. We know the wrong way to approach something like fasting. And yet we see very clear scriptural warrant to fast. So we need to ask, what is the right approach? Well, I've already said it in so many words. Fasting should be regarded and approached as a means to an end. And not as the end itself, which is what we so often do in the Christian life. It's something that we should do when we feel compelled to do so by the Spirit of God for a spiritual purpose. You understand? 
We must view it as something we do solely because the Spirit leads us to it for whatever reason and never because we feel that we should just do it as a matter of good Christian discipline. Fasting certainly is an aid to discipline, but beloved, we should be concerned about our discipline every single day of our lives. John Owen said, Be killing the flesh or the flesh will be killing you. We must mortify the flesh. We must fight this flesh and its many enticements, its many lusts. But we are to fast when led by the Spirit of God as a means of leading us into even more sweet communion with our Father in heaven. It is the means, not the end. We fast when the Spirit leads us to feel there is some peculiar need which requires the entire concentration of my being to be upon God and my utter dependence upon Him. My worship of Him. That is to be the only approach that we have to fasting. And having clearly stated that, we can then move on to what our practice of fasting is to look like. What does Jesus say? He says that when we fast, we are not to draw attention to ourselves. In fact, beloved, we fast for the exact opposite reason. Do you see that? We want self to diminish, and we want our perception of the God who is to increase. So we're not to go unshaven if our practice is to be cleanly shaven. We're not to disfigure ourselves or to look extra gloomy so that the eyes of men will look to us in pity and grant us that coveted super spiritual status. No, Jesus said, no, you are not to be like the hypocrites. That's not who you are. You are not the play actors. You are not the role players. You are not the pretenders who are acting like they are someone they are not. You are not those who parade supposed faith, but do not really know the first thing about faith. We're not to do what the Pharisees did, beloved, because we are to have the motivation. We are not to have the motivation to do the things that they did. Do you understand? Theirs was a worldly religion. We don't like to think that way. We think, oh, if I could only be as righteous as the Pharisees were. They were worldly. They were temporary. They were temporal. It was all about their name, their life, their little piece of history. It's worldliness. If you think that your life is to be lived in a way that calls the attention of men to your personal piety, to your discipline, to your often fasting, to your street corner prayers, and your loud announcements of all that you do for the kingdom of God, then you must understand something absolutely critical here in the Christian life. I must speak to you in the clearest terms that I know how to give. So listen to me. If this describes you, pay close attention to what I'm about to say. 
if this describes you, your religion is vain. Do you understand? You might as well do none of these things. Because the essence of the true Christian life is never about the way in which you're perceived by others. The essence of the Christian life is whether or not you live out your days before the face of God and not before the faces of men. Try as you may in vain, you do not do both. Do you see the grand point that Jesus is making here? It's not simply a question of giving or praying or fasting. This principle covers the whole of the Christian life. It condemns equally the affecting of ultra-pious looks as well as ultra-pious attitudes. It says that we are to take the focus off of ourselves. Off of what we are doing. And we are to look to God in complete, utter reliance upon him for all that we need in this life. We are to forget vainly chasing after the approval of our peers and look to Jesus, who alone can gain us the only approval that ultimately matters. We are to fast like we pray unto God. Not to disfigure our faces, we are to wash our faces and we are to anoint our heads. We are to go on doing whatever it is that we do and not call attention to our service to God because, beloved, your service to God is just that, to God and to Him alone. There's never a reason for you to call attention to these things because God knows already. Don't diminish Him. He knows even the heart that stands behind the things you do. And needing anyone other than God to know defeats the purpose of doing these things in the first place. Do you understand that? Beloved, do you hear the word of God this morning? The idea of washing your face and anointing your head. Please understand that many go wrong in thinking that even this is a call to be ridiculous. This is a call to fake it, to put on airs, to at least look the part even when you're not feeling the part. Look good when you are not good. The Lord Jesus Christ is not calling upon you to plaster some silly robotic smile on your face and pretend that your life is free from all difficulty because of Jesus. That is not authentic Christianity. It would be the exact error that Jesus himself is teaching against. Our Lord's great principle here is always this. Forget other people altogether when you fast. In order to avoid looking tortured or sad, don't resort to a silly fake smile being spread across your face. Beloved, the point is forget your face. Do you understand? Forget yourself. Forget other people. Don't spend your time foolishly worrying about what all the other people are thinking. Forget yourself and give yourself entirely to God. 
Concern yourself in this life with His glory and His glory alone. I'll close with this this morning. Beloved, if your concern is to please God and to please God alone, understand that you will not be in great difficulty about even these, any of these things, even fasting. If you are entirely living for God and His glory, then you will not need me to tell you when it is that you should fast or pray or give or what you should wear or eat or think. The Bible says that the man who has died to himself and lives for God will know what he should do in these things because he is doing them not for his own glory, but for the glory of Almighty God. Beloved, thank God if you are living this way that the promise of Jesus Christ here is sure and safe and can never, ever be taken away from you. Your Father, your Father in heaven who sees in secret will reward you openly. And so brothers and sisters, I ask you again this morning, are you taking heed of yourselves? Then hear the word of God and live your life in such a way that God and God alone receives all of the glory. Christianity is about Jesus Christ and his work, his righteousness, his glory. And so we are to live our lives in a way that points towards him, to his power, to his glory, to his work, to his sacrifice. Live with an understanding that your dependence is entirely in Him. And your life will point to Him and His glory in a way that far surpasses anything that you could ever manufacture for that purpose. Any wax fruit that you might be able to come up with. living in utter dependence upon God through the power of the Holy Spirit will bear this fruit to the glory of Almighty God's name. And so in taking heed of ourselves, we ask not how it is that we can just get it done, but how it is that we can truly decrease, that God would increase and project His glory in a world that stands in such desperate need of the glorious light that only He can give. Amen? Let's pray.